0: The CIA been sort of straining at the leash to get the authorities to go after Al Qaeda and Bin Laden hadn't got them from the Clinton administration or the Bush administration. That all changed on 9/11, and then Kofa Black, who was the head of the Counterterrorism Center, basically, you know, briefed Bush in the Situation Room like, you know, we have a plan, and Bush went for
1: it. An excerpt from today's guest, whose recent book recounts America's first secret mission into Afghanistan just days after 9/11. Award-winning journalist and author Toby Harndon is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Port in the Spirit. May 30th is Memorial Day in the United States, a day in which America honors her warriors, and my book, Immortal Valor, is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book, available in stores and online, to discover more as we honor America's warriors this Memorial Day. Welcome back. Today's guest is a recipient of the Orwell Prize for Books and a former foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times of London and the Daily Telegraph reporting from more than 30 countries. He specializes in terrorism and war, and his recent book is called First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. And journalist and author Toby Harnden joins us now. Toby, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Robert, uh, very glad to be here.
1: Uh, we're thrilled because uh, I'm just getting into this book and it, it really reads like a novel. And uh, I'm amazed at the access you you were able to get. Well. How did you get that access? Was it your journalist contacts? So,
0: kind of just the old-fashioned way, really. I mean, I didn't have uh, a particular in. Well, I didn't have any in with the CIA, in fact. Um, but I, you know, I was fascinated by this story. Really, going back to nine eleven and learning about the the death of Mike Span, um, and I remember watching Shannon Span's uh, eulogy to her husband. She was also a CIA officer. Um, uh, sort of live on on CNN So I'd always been fascinated and um that fascination grew later on when I saw a video of David Tyson who was a CIA case officer that was with Mike's band running through this fort, Kalajangi, just after Mike had been killed and David killed a lot of Al-Qaeda, you know, prisoners who were, you know, engaged in this insurrection. And it was just incredible footage. And I remember his sort of staring eyes. You know, the sort of thousand yard stare classic mm-hmm. and wondering, like, who was this guy and what had he been through? And he was dressed in this Afghan garb, mixture of Afghan garb and American gear. Um And so I just I just sort of tracked him down. I mean, he I, I eventually found um, an, he'd been an academic at Indiana University and um, a professor there had thanked him in some acknowledgments. So I, I emailed the professor. Um, who passed on my email to David, who eventually contacted me. I met him in a Panera Bread, and um, he couldn't say very much because he was still serving in the CIA. Oh. Um, but we kind of kept in contact. Uh, but that was actually 2013. I mean, he, he sort of – he dropped off, and then he came back, and then he, re- he retired. Um, but I just went from one person to the next, just, you know, just saying this is who I am. I had a couple of books previously, which – a nice calling cards so I could send them to say, you know, I wrote this sure. bandit country about the IRA, I wrote Dead Men Risen about the British in Helmand in 2009. And so I just built up the credibility like that. And, you know, I don't know who said, you know, most of life is showing up, but I think by, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. You contact people and you say, listen, you know, this is who I am. I'd, I'd love to hear your story. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you just sort of do it like that. And eventually there was kind of a critical mass. I felt that, that you know, all, you know, all these people have their own networks and they're obviously talking about this sort of weird guy with a British accent, you know, <laughs> who, who's contacting them. Um, and I guess they decided, well, he seems legit. He seems, you know, like a straight shooter. And he's it seems like he's, you know, he's going to be fair. And he's also kind of done his, his, his homework. So yeah, I think we'll sort of, talk to him. And then in the end, I contacted the agency with some trepidation because I thought maybe there's a competing project or, Mm. you know, they just, you know, obviously, you know, they have, they have their reputation. Um, but they were actually helpful. I mean, they didn't hand over stuff to me. Um, but they did facilitate some interviews and they did, they did sort of get behind the project to a degree. So that was very gratifying.
1: I, I bet they can't endorse any books.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Now the CIA. Many people don't know this. They were the America's first warriors on the battlefront in Afghanistan. How did that come about? Was it out of urgency, necessity?
0: Uh, I think both those things. So, yeah, absolutely. Immediately after 9-11, I mean, I remember it vividly. I was, you know, I was, you know, in Washington DC that day. This there was this sort of national kind of imperative to get in there and and certainly that was the way that president bush was was treating it and you know we were all fearful of, of the next attack coming and you know and also there was this you know uh i think understandable and legitimate sort of desire for, for vengeance to hit back at the people who killed you know 3000 at the pentagon and new york and in pennsylvania um and remarkably the pentagon didn't have a plan for for Afghanistan. You know, so General Tommy Franks was, you know, in command of CENTCOM. Um, You know, he he didn't have anything sort of on the shelf. and, And so what he was proposing was, you know, it would take sort of months and it would be a conventional invasion. And there was just this sort of sense, I think, politically, but also just in terms of the nation that we just couldn't, we just couldn't wait that long. But the CIA had been in Afghanistan, you know, in the 1980s, Um, you know, sort of funding and facilitating the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets, a sort of proxy uh, war. Soviets left in 89. And, you know, most US policymakers sort of turned their back on Afghanistan, but a small number of of people in the CIA sort of kept in contact. And then you had the rise of bin Laden and al-Qaeda, and eventually, Bin Laden relocating to Afghanistan, you know, given safe haven by the Taliban regime, you know, from Sudan. And so then, you know, there was a lot of focus uh, on Afghanistan um, from the agency. And then from '99 uh, onwards, so two years before 9/11, um, there were CIA teams that were that were going into uh, the Panjshir Valley to meet with Ahmed Shah Massoud, who turned out was eventually assassinated two days before 9/11. And David Tyson, actually, who in some ways is a central figure of the book, he was he was on those missions. Rich Blee was was another sort of well-known CIA officer who was who was part of that. He headed up Alex Station, the Bin Laden unit. So these teams would be going in and out, and the CIA had developed a concept of, you know, supporting the Northern Alliance, the indigenous resistance uh, right. to the Taliban, uh, who were harboring Al Qaeda, um, as a way of, of getting at Bin Laden. And th- and in fact the the CIA been sort of straining at the leash to get the authorities to go after al-Qaeda and bin Laden hadn't got them from the Clinton administration or the Bush administration. That all changed on 9-11. And then Kofa Black, who was the head of the counterterrorism center, basically, you know, briefed Bush in the situation room, like, you know, we have a plan. And Bush went for it.
1: Now, they had some early successes on the ground, the CIA, um, before the troops arrived. And they learned some lessons that... According to your book, weren't followed um, subsequently when the when the troops started fanning out and getting involved with conventional warfare. What were some of the lessons the CIA learned that the troops didn't follow?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of you know obviously hindsight's a wonderful thing, and I don't want to be sitting here in Northern Virginia in 2021 saying, "Oh, if only I, you know, if only they'd yeah. done what I said." And, sure. you know, none of this was none of this was easy. But I think what that early period showed. And so we're talking about, you know, so Jawbreaker, the first CIA team went into the Pantier Valley, September 26th, 2001. So, you know, you know, two weeks or so right. after after 9-11. Team Alpha were the first uh, agency team, first Americans behind enemy lines. They were in country on October the 17th, 2001. So they, they got in very quickly. And, ve- and very small numbers of Americans. So you had eight CIA officers on Team Alpha, and then they brought in an ODA, Operational Detachment Alpha, 12 Green Berets, uh, three days later. And you had other similar teams coming in subsequently um, around Afghanistan. But really, you had hundreds of Americans um, who were acting as, in- as advisors to the indigenous resistance against the foreign invaders who were the Arabs of Al-Qaeda. And that was the sort of model which went right back to sort of OSS days, OSS being right. the predecessor of the CIA, but also the Green Berets. And um, and that sort of formula worked. It was an Afghan fight. The Americans, uh, you know, waited in the wings, didn't do much much of the fighting. They sort of facilitated the agency, was able to sort of do this through sort of cultural expertise, languages, you know, work the tribes. They brought in a lot of money, uh, the team mm-hmm. Alpha brought in three million dollars in non-sequential, non-sequential hundred-dollar bills, which you know helped sort of grease the wheels and, and sure. encourage defections and get warlords on on the side. Um, and you know, it's sort of tragic, really. But I feel, I mean, the success in those early days was unexpected. I mean, Rumsfeld and the Pentagon were saying, "Well, oh, we're going to get bogged down." It's gonna, there was a DIA report said that you know you're going to get, you know, uh, you're going to get have to dig in for the winter. But in fact, it you know, Mazar-e-Sharif fell November the 10th, 2001. And then, you know, by early December, that was the end of the Taliban regime. Or, you know, that Taliban regime, obviously, they came back right. later on. Um, but I think in success, the U.S. policymakers sort of failed to look at the lessons of, of that period, like that it was small numbers of Americans, and, uh, and it wasn't sort of the big army and, and bases and, you know, the 10th Mountain Division and and all the supply lines. And we sort of turned from being, you know, the advisors to the resistance to being the invaders ourselves, you know, which, you know, in, inevitably, yeah. um, you know, that's what we became when you have, you know, foreign troops with large bases patrolling and obviously you get civilian casualties in any type, type of combat situation. And so we, you know we had a fairly minimalist sort of solution that worked. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect and it's Afghanistan is messy, but instead of, of sticking to that, it was like, we just, and I very vividly remember the atmosphere, you know, it's like we, sh- we shoot for the moon. America can do anything. Let's go. and Regime change is pretty simple. Everybody wants democracy. Let's try and build a centralized democracy in Afghanistan. Let's go and change a regime in Iraq. And, you know, now, it, you know, it looks like arrogance or hubris, you know, more, you know, benignly you could just say it's the American can do spirit. But unfortunately I feel that, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't look at the model instead of taking the model that had been successful. We just decided to expand it and, you know, shoot for the moon.
1: I hope you're enjoying this episode's focus on the war on terror. Be sure to check out my earlier conversation with former army ranger, Dr. Tony Brooks, author of Leave No Man Behind, the untold story of the Rangers' unrelenting search for Marcus Luttrell. Just less than 24 hours before we were on the helicopter, uh, we had just lost, we knew we lost a helicopter that was carrying 16 men. So we were expecting the worst, and we were angry. You know, who, who dare attack us? That was our kind of, our thought. And this time it was really close to home in the special operations community. We were pretty pissed off. We were ready to fight. You'll find the show in our past episode listings on your podcast app. May 30th is Memorial Day in the United States, a day in which America honors her warriors. And my book, Immortal Valor, is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book, available in stores and online, to discover more as we honor America's warriors this Memorial Day. Now back to the conversation. Now the title of the book is First Casualty. And obviously that refers to Mike Spann. For people that don't don't know who he was, could you uh, give us some background on Michael? Sure.
0: So Johnny Michael Spann was his his uh, given name, the Michael spelt E-A, so the Irish way. Um, he was uh, uh, 32 years old, uh, he'd been a marine Corps officer uh, in uh, 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 Ang- in the Anglico, so air, air naval gunfire liaison company um, he had joined the CIA just two years earlier as a paramilitary officer um, and he, he'd married he'd met Shannon span uh, who, he, who uh, had become his wife uh, in June 2001 at, at the farm they'd been um, they've been on on the same course he had two daughters from a previous marriage and Shannon and Mike uh, had a son, Jake, who was three months old on, on nine 11. Oh, wow. And uh, you know, I, I actually was spent time with Shannon and some of the team alpha members uh, this week. Um, and, you know, I mean, her life obviously was sort of uh, turned upside down. Um, but we were talking about Mike naturally. And, I feel that Mike was sort of the, in a way, the personification of America after 9-11. I mean, I think he was that way before 9-11, but sort of black and black and white, you know, uh, take the fight to the enemy. Um, you know, he wasn't um, a person of sort of ambiguity or maybe nuance. He knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to be at the tip of the spear. He wanted to get in there. He had every reason to sit this one out. You know, he just newly married, young baby, sure complicated domestic situation because his, his ex-wife was terminally ill from cancer who actually died a month after he did at the end of 2001. So, you know, very complicated situation, but, but Mike's uh, view. And, you know, I think this extended to the rest of the team, but he was the one who kind of expressed it strongly was that uh, he needed to, to get out there. And to, I mean, he, I've talking to Shannon about this. Um, he had a discussion with his daughter Allison, who was sort of set, you know, she was like nine years old, saying like, "Daddy, do you have to go?" And he said, "I have to go because what if every daddy said they didn't, they didn't want to go? You know, who would protect us?" So he sort of saw protecting his family and protecting his country as as sort of the same thing. And so he was the type of person who, who I mean, he sort of fought to get on the team. I mean, he was he he really wanted to get out there, and and that's what he did. And Shannon, I mean, it was very poignant in, in the eulogy that I mentioned before. Shannon said that um, when Mike died, he was he was in the right place at the right time, um, mm-hmm. and by that, I mean, I asked her about it this week, and she she said that what she, what she meant was that you know this was his career, this was his life, this was who he was, and he wouldn't have wanted to be, uh, you know, anywhere else, and you know, and I I guess you know by implication uh he would have had you know he died doing uh, what he wanted to do and, and 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 would have felt it was an honorable death and i i thought that was a very sort of poignant thing for a, a widow to say yeah
1: i agree getting to know the family and also being so close to the story about the afghan war for 20 plus years what were your thoughts when you saw the way this country withdrew from that war
0: oh there were many Many thoughts and emotions. I mean, I was there in uh, November, 2020. Um, and in fact, I was there when the US ele- election happened. I watched it on Indian TV in a hotel in Kabul, which is probably the best way to watch a presidential election. <laughs> um, but I went to the north and I interviewed Abdul Rashid Dostum, the, the you know notorious Uzbek warlord who was t- uh, Team Alpha's sort of ally, uh, America's ally in 2001. Uh, I went to Kalajangi, the fort where the, where Mike Spam was killed and where the battle raged. Um, but I was really struck. I mean, I came back from that trip thinking like it's over. I mean, we, we knew that both Biden and Trump, whoever had won, and by that point Biden had won, uh, were, were you know had pledged to withdraw the troops and and end, end the war from America's perspective. Um, but I felt it was you know I didn't see an American troop. Uh, in the six weeks that I was in the country, uh, Dostum, even in the north, was basically surrounded in his sort of stronghold of, of Shebagan, um, which was, you know, uh, Uzbek Turkmen area, not a Pashtun mm-hmm. area at all. Uh, but it took me nearly two weeks to, to get a helicopter to get out of there because the roads were unsafe. And so it felt like, you know, the writing was on the wall. But when it happened, I didn't expect it to happen as quickly as as it did. And it was heartbreaking. You know, we, we'd we gone from this success in a few weeks to this sort of 20-year unravelling. And, you know, there were many Afghans I knew, the translator I'd worked with, that we actually managed to get out eventually. And he's now in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, but he lived wow. in my basement for a few weeks. And, I mean, you know, the range of emotions from the Team Alpha members, from, you know, sort of despair, mourning anger all all those things and you know clearly there were a lot of questions they had about the manner of the withdrawal and from some of them the fact of the withdrawal you know there was this feeling that we could have kept in at least a, a small number of, of, of troops but it was very impressive to see what happened with them and it was sort of characteristic that they sort of just pivoted and started helping getting people out and that and so that they 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 channeled their energies and, and emotions and everything into doing that. And to this day, I mean, Sh- Shannon Spann, um is, you know, desperately, you know, every day is working on getting Afghans out. She was in Portugal trying to facilitate flights out recently. Uh, wow. David Tyson as well. And so that's what they're doing. And, and that's how they're trying to, you know, you know, pay back the allies that helped them, you know, 20 years ago um, and try and get some sort of, some good out of this you know pretty painful situation
1: well i'm glad they're doing that the book is called first casualty toby thank you so much for being on the show this has been great
0: well thank you very much for having me robert i appreciate it
1: that's it for this episode thanks again for joining me next time author mark hager will be here to discuss his new book the last of the 357th infantry harold frank's world war ii story of faith and Running out of ammo, one of the men that was with him had got hit in the leg, and the leg was you know, broken from the round that hit his leg, and he's trying to carry him, get across a flooded field, which he thought may get him back to the American lines, and when, it, when he pulls him up and crawls up on the bank with him, there was a German from the 15th Parachute Infantry Regiment uh, with his MP-40 standing right there greeting them. He looked around and summed it up really well. He says, we're about to find out what tough really is. That's next time. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC
0: Media Group.